The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So for the... And having been away for a while, um, I uh, thought about what to talk about this morning. And I think I'm, I'm just, I just decided to continue with the theme that I had been slowly winding, working my way through for the last six months. Um, been talking about the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. And um, the last few talks I gave were about the first factor of the Eightfold Path, the right view, wise view, wise understanding. And um, so today I thought I'd talk about the second aspect of the Eightfold Path, wise intention. So there's a connection between these two, these first two aspects of the Eightfold Path. Wise view, wise understanding, when we, when we have a kind of a framework of how we understand our world, it leads us to certain intentions about how to act in line with those, with that understanding. And this is true with respect to any view that we have. You know, that our views shape our intentions and our actions, our behavior. So, and, and this often happens in a kind of an unconscious way. We're not always aware exactly of what our, our views are. You know, they can kind of be um, submerged or hidden or, or unconscious. Um, that we've picked up views and ideas and beliefs based on our culture, based on our family history. And then we just act out of those without really recognizing that our actions and our intentions are motivated by these views. So an example, a simple example. Um, One common view in our culture is that happiness comes from an accumulation of status or wealth. or that happiness comes from being able to control our environment to create what we'd like, to create the situation that we'd like. So these views, these beliefs will lead to, um, for the, the first case, it would result in intentions and behaviors designed to increase status and wealth. And the second, it would lead to intentions and behaviors designed to control our environment to create a certain situation. And uh, believing that our happiness is dependent upon this. So the view that the, the Buddha proposed is actually quite, you know, it's quite counter to these kind of familiar cultural views that we hold. He proposed that actually accumulating things, accumulating status, wealth, trying to control things, will simply lead us into frustration, dissatisfaction, and um, 
you know, a sense of not being uh, content with what is, is, is actually happening, with what's already happening. If we, you know, if we manage to control our environment for a while, we feel like, oh, there's happiness there. You know, it kind of confirms itself that that's the way to go. But when we recognize, because we cannot always control our situation, when that you know, side of reality hits us, we feel, you know, despairing. We feel like we've done something wrong. We feel like we've failed. As opposed to just recognizing, oh, this is the way it is. We don't always have control. When we um, manage to accumulate things, you know, we may be happy in that accumulation. If we don't manage to accumulate things, the, the frustration of that is immediately apparent. But if we do manage to uh, to accumulate wealth or status. The truth, the reality, will inevitably inv- invade at some point that these experiences, these possessions are impermanent and that we'll, we're, in, we're destined to be separated from them at some point. And in that separation, that loss, there is Again, a feeling of, oh, I've done something wrong, or why me? You know, what's wrong with me? As opposed to just recognizing, it's like this. This is a reality. Things are impermanent. So the right view of um, the Eightfold Path, I've talked about various aspects of right view over the last few times I spoke but I'm just going to highlight two of them. Um, one is the understanding of karma, which is basically a teaching about how our choices, the choices that we make, influence our, our experience. They influence our happiness or unhappiness. If we make choices that are skillful, then we, we tend to move towards happiness. If we make choices that are unskillful, we tend to move towards unhappiness. And skillful and unskillful here are actually defined in terms of um, the, this, um, uh, the word that the Buddha uses is dukkha. Um, suffering is the common translation, but it can simply mean, you know, dissatisfaction, unease, um, unsatisfactoriness. That the skillful and unskillful, uh, the teaching about skillful and unskillful has to do with what leads us towards the letting go or the release of this dukkha, this un- unhappiness, this dissatisfaction, and moves us towards this happiness. So it's this unskillful actions tend to lead us towards dissatisfaction and unhappiness. Skillful actions tend to lead us towards happiness. So in this, you know, in this teaching, really this ethical aspect of the teaching, this is considered kind of the ethical component of the teaching. You know, it's not about what we typically think of as morality, of right, wrong, good, bad. It's more about what, what is helpful, what is supportive for us to be happy, 
And we really misunderstand that. You know, as I said, we have these views of what we think will make us happy. And those views typically will run into reality at some point, <laughs> into truth. And, and we, we get a sense of there's something off about those views, only don't, we don't really understand that it's the view itself that is off. We think somehow we've made a mistake, we've done something wrong, we've failed in our actions, and that's why we're not happy. As opposed to, to, reali- to, to recognizing the view itself that having what I want will make me happy is not the way to go. So there's this understanding of karma, the choices that we make lead us towards happiness or unhappiness. And in this, the choices here, I mean, one key point here, and this ties into intention, into right intention, because these choices, you know, we often think about choices as being the actual action that we take. You know, so we we decide to say something to somebody. We, we, we make a, a, take a decision to say something to somebody and we think of that as the choice, that I'm going to say that to somebody. And that is an aspect of the choice, but the aspect of choice that the, the teachings are pointing to here isn't the actual thing that we decide to do or say, but it's the motivation which impels us to do or say that thing that's important to keep track of. So that the same thing could be said to somebody with a motivation of compassion and wishing to help. Or it might be said with a motivation of wanting to look good and wanting to be seen as a certain kind of person. Both of those may be present also. You know, we have mixed motivations. Um, but the, that's, that's what is being pointed to here is, is the motivation behind our choices, looking at why we are taking action. And so that's really coming into this realm of right intention, of looking at what our intentions are. So the other aspect of right view that's really important, um, that kind of shapes our intentions, is the understanding of the Four Noble Truths the truth of suffering, of dukkha, the truth of the cause of suffering, being craving or wanting, the truth that it's possible to uh, end that craving and be released from suffering, and then that there is a path that we can engage with, practices that we can work with that will support our moving towards the ending of suffering. So this view of the Eightfold Path is really diametrically opposed to the way we normally think of our happiness as coming to us. We normally think of our happiness as coming because we, we have things or we control things. You know, that we, we get things or we can control things. Those are two main ways that we think of happiness as coming to us. And the Buddha proposes... You know, the third noble truth is that the freedom from dukkha comes from letting go of wanting. It's not about accumulating. It's not about having. It's about letting go. So this is a really radical shift in our, you know, idea of 
how happiness can, can come to us. So it really is a shift of perspective, this right view. If you have some sense that these aspects, you know, that happiness c- can come from letting go of wanting rather than of having, rather than happiness coming from having, and that happiness comes based out of making skillful choices, letting go of unskillful choices, then these um, views can begin to shape our intentions, shape how we choose to act in our lives. So if we have the understanding of karma, if we have the understanding about how to, that, that the choice that we make, the intentions, the motivations behind our choices impacts our happiness, we begin to um, have the intention of behaving from skillful motivations. If we want to be happy and we see that it comes from this, we have the intention to behave from skillful motivations, to not engage in actions that would harm others, and to not engage in things that would harm ourselves. We begin to have a, an aspiration to cultivate beautiful qualities of mind, of kindness, of compassion. <coughs> If we have the understanding of the Four Noble Truths, this view around the letting go that ultimately will lead to happiness, then again, this will lead to intentions around looking at where we're holding on to things and beginning to see, can we let go? Can we release? Also, as we see how these same truths apply to everybody. I mean, we we begin to see how they apply to us through looking at this in our experience. And we understand, because we're human beings, that all human beings are subject to these same mistakes. You know, the same mistakes that we make, the same misunderstandings that we have about where our happiness comes from. We begin to see that these are not just our mistakes. They are really widespread. I mean, that everybody makes these mistakes about understanding where happiness comes from. And as we see the suffering in our own lives, the, the dissatisfaction, the unease, the frustration that results from these mistaken views, and we see that everyone is subject to the same kind of suffering, a kind of compassion begins to arise. You know, we see that... <sighs> You know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, you know, it's heartbreaking to see how misunderstood people are and the impact that that has on the world and on the way we treat our fellow human beings. So it can really bring a sense of compassion and kindness towards others, an intention towards compassion and kindness. So initially this wisdom of these, uh, of, of wise view, you know, the, 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 the understandings. You know, initially we kind of borrow this wisdom. You know, we may hear this reframing of where happiness can be found, and we think, well, I don't know how it's going to work letting go, but, you know, 
certainly, at least in my case, you know, I found that at some point in my life I felt like I hit bottom. You know, it's like everything that I had tried to, to find happiness had failed. And it's like, you know, well, here's this teaching. Somebody had sent me a book. And it's like, well, here's a teaching. I don't see how this is going to work. Letting go of what I want. I don't see how that's going to work. But I'd really felt like I'd hit bottom. And so it's like, I'm willing to try. You know, somebody's saying, this is possible. This is a direction. And, and it's, it certainly sounded in the book that I read, which was Everyday Zen by Joko Beck, that she had, was speaking from direct experience. So, in a sense, I was borrowing her faith, her wisdom, and saying, okay, you know, it seems to have worked for her. Maybe I can try this. And so we begin that way. We begin by borrowing the understanding and applying some of these um, tools of the Eightfold Path to our lives. And we begin to then see for ourselves how it works. We begin to recognize, we understand how these practices work and how they actually do lead us to more happiness in our lives. That letting go actually does lead to happiness. And when we get that sense for ourselves, then there's an even deeper um, connection with this wisdom and a deeper motivation to uh, act in the ways that will lead us towards happiness, towards a truer kind of happiness. So the intentions of right intention, there are three main aspects to this that the Buddha talked about. He talked about the intention towards renunciation, letting go of wanting, Letting go of sense desire, primarily, here is what he's talking about. The intention towards kindness, and the intention towards compassion. So I'd like to talk about these a little bit. Uh, But first I'd like to to just kind of frame this um, from the perspective of what the Buddha actually said. He said that before he became enlightened, he was meditating and he, you know, recognized that he could kind of put his thoughts into two categories. He said there's, there's, there's thoughts that will lead to affliction and suffering and there's thoughts that will lead to welfare and benefit and happiness. So whenever I notice thoughts of sense desire, ill will and cruelty, I recognize that those were not so helpful. I put those on one side. Whenever I recognize thoughts of renunciation, of non-ill will or kindness, of non-cruelty or compassion, I put those on the other side. So you saw that the, the thoughts of sense desire, ill will and cruelty led to affliction both of himself and others. And the other thoughts, the thoughts of kindness, of compassion and of renunciation, he said he realized, I could think thoughts like that all day and all night and no affliction would come to myself or anyone. That these thoughts were wholesome. So this was his own exploration. I'm going to come back to this in a little bit because I find it personally inspiring to reflect on the fact that in the Buddha's own practice, he had thoughts of cruelty arising. 
you know, this, this is helpful for me to remember. <laughs> you know, he was not immune to this. <clears throat> so the first, and the, the first one is kind of a hard one for us to, to get our minds around sometimes, the intention towards renunciation. You know, renunciation, I think, has a kind of a bad rap, that word. Um, we don't like that word. What it implies to us is that we let it go of things that we want, the things that we like. Um, you know, that... that uh, it, it generally just is not a happy thought for us, <laughs> this idea of renunciation. What he's connecting it with primarily um, is renouncing sense desire, the desire towards having our senses pleased. And again, this is not something that makes a lot of sense to us. You know, what's wrong with this? Why, why would this be a problem to, to please our senses? So first I want to talk a little bit about sense desire. Um, you know, it has a strong hold on us. And it's really connected to our views about where happiness comes from. That we think that sense pleasure, having our senses gratified, is a path to happiness. And if we find a way for our senses to be gratified, that that's where happiness comes from. And so it makes sense pleasure extremely attractive, and the desire to fulfill that sense pleasure uh, feels like the path to happiness. So it's, it's, it's really tightly embedded with the way our minds are, are structured. I mean, it's not, it's not us, it's not even just us in this country, it's, it's really all, all animals, I think. <laughs> all living beings have this kind of uh, notion built into their uh, biology, in a way. You know, because there is a kind of a gratification, a happiness that comes from having our senses pleased. So we're, we're conditioned to, to believe that this is the path to happiness. And so it's very natural for us to have this sense, this sense desire. But in fact, we can't really fathom, I mean, part of our misunderstanding here is that we can't fathom the possibility for happiness apart from sense pleasure, apart from having our senses gratified, because these two have been linked in our minds for so long. And the state of, of the possibility of happiness, apart from having our senses gratified, is quite foreign to us if we haven't explored our own minds too much. So you know, we, we, we just don't see, it, it's like, you know, how do we make this, this leap? It just doesn't make much sense to us. So in terms of renunciation of sense desire, um, you know, the Buddha actually didn't just say, stop desiring, you know. <laughs> he actually was approaching it kind of from an indirect angle. He said, you know, we need to approach this not from a, a kind of a harsh method of just saying, you know, either, um, you know, d- d- s- trying to stop it or repress the feelings of desire. You know, either one of those approaches uh, 
doesn't really get at the root of the problem. It's just changing our desire to repress desire. It shifts the... the um, It shifts the direction of our desire, but it's still desire that's, that's operating. So, it's because our sense desire is so deeply ingrained, we really can't just say, let go of sense desire through an act of will. This is not really the approach. It, this kind of thing might lead to a kind of repression. If we try to, through an act of will, say, I'm not going to want, I'm not going to want sense pleasure, it's going to lead to repression which is cultivating a kind of aversion and kind of tends to increase that desire because that desire is motivated out of a very strong belief that this is the direction for our happiness. And if that belief is not being acknowledged and it's being repressed, it's going to kind of come out even stronger. So the Buddha suggested that um, we need to use wisdom to break the grip that desire has on us. We are bound to desire because we see it as the direction for our happiness. And so we need to start to understand the fundamental mistake in that view. that That that's a mistake. Bhikkhu Bodhi says, in terms of exploring this kind of, you know, renunciation, he says, real renunciation is not a matter of compelling ourselves to give up things still inwardly cherished, but of changing our perspective on them so that they no longer bind us. When we understand the nature of desire, desire falls away by itself without the need for struggle. So this points to understanding, as he says, when we understand the nature of desire, it begins to fall away. Now this is not something that happens like, you know, oh, you know, you hear somebody talk about desire and immediately it stops. It's much more of a gradual kind of exploration that we go through. So I want to talk a little bit about this, um, this exploration that we make. So as I said a little earlier, the hold that desire on us is intimately connected to our view, our belief that satisfying those desires is the way to happiness. Out of this view, believing this view, we act in ways that continue to reinforce this, this cycle. You know, we get what we want. And we we um, have a desire for some kind of sense gratification. And we get what we want. And we experience some happiness. Now that confirms to us that getting what we want is the path to happiness. It feels good. It confirms to us that this is the right way to go. We don't then kind of recognize that over time that, you know, if we've gotten what we want, you know, either our own minds kind of get bored with that, you know, and kind of it falls to the wayside. It's like, oh yeah, that thing. Oh, that was great. You know, oh, where's the next thing? You know, what else can I find that'll make me feel good? You know, wanting to find something to want so that we can get it, so that we can have that hit of happiness again. So we have that kind of inclination. 
towards getting what we want so that we get that hit of happiness. So we, we, you know, as I said earlier, if we get what we want, we have that happiness, but we, you know, we don't really see that it's just reinforcing this wanting, actually. It's reinforcing this pattern of wanting and that that, you know, that thing that we get, the gratification, the pleasure that we get from getting what we want, we don't think of looking at really how long does that last? How, how happy does it really make us to have that piece of chocolate? How happy does it really make us to have the, the car that we want? You know, maybe that makes us really happy for a couple of months. But then, you know, a dear friend of mine got a beautiful new car. And within a couple of weeks of getting it, got into an accident that totaled the car. You know, how long does the happiness last? It's kind of up to circumstance. <laughs> so the view of the Four Noble Truths counters this understanding about how desire works and suggests that we change our perspective to look at the desire itself. When we actually start from that perspective, we look at the, the desire for what's going on. We don't usually think about doing this, actually. You know, we're more focused on the getting the thing and thinking about how happy we're going to be when we get the thing. So that's kind of overshadowing this whole experience of wanting itself. But if we actually take a look at this wanting, we actually look at the experience of wanting itself, we find that it immediately, as soon as wanting springs up, it produces a feeling of dissatisfaction, of lack, that something is a little off and needs to be changed. So the feeling of wanting itself has a kind of mm, unpleasantness, dissatisfactoriness to it. So the wanting itself is already connected with this dukkha, this suffering. So when we observe this process, we observe the wanting itself, notice the kind of dissatisfaction of the wanting itself. We observe the process of either getting what we want or not getting what we want and see the, the kind of patterns that unfold around this, the getting what we want and then the, the kind of idea, oh, this is going to make me happy for a certain length of time and then whew, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't don't get what we want, we see immediately the suffering of that. When we observe this process with mindfulness, and this is what the Buddha recommends, look at this exploration, make an exploration of what wanting is. The mind itself, through this process of observing wanting, begins to understand the drawbacks of wanting. And it starts to slowly let go of that wanting. If you watch, if you even, you know, take a very small desire, like, you know, a craving for a certain kind of food or, um, you know, craving to watch television at a certain time or, you know, something, or to 
go to the internet and look something up, you know. Feel that wanting. Feel the dissatisfaction of that wanting. If you don't act on that desire, wanting itself is the same as any other experience. It is impermanent. It will go away. And then you get to watch and see what happens as wanting disappears. When the wanting disappears, that feeling of dissatisfaction disappears. It actually feels like being released from a vice grip, you know? It's quite an amazing experience to recognize that that happiness of the letting go of the wanting. It's a different kind of happiness than of having what we want. So this is a, a big topic, this topic of exploring desire. And I thought I'd talk about this more next week <laughs> so that I can move on to the other aspects of um, wise intention. So the, uh, the, the next aspect of wise intention is the intention to goodwill, uh, of kindness, or the intention of non-ill will, actually. It's actually phrased in the negative here in... Uh, in the Buddha's teaching. He says, you know, this, this is a wholesome intention, the intention towards non-ill will. So what is ill will? It's kind of the, you know, the flavors of aversive states of mind, you know, anger, hatred, rage, aversion, contempt, that kind of uh, emotion has the quality of ill will. Milder flavors might be irritation, displeasure, annoyance, that kind of thing. So our usual response to ill will, if we're not aware, not mindful of it, is to perhaps feel justified in it. That's a big one for me, you know. It's like, oh yeah, you know, I'm right. I know this person shouldn't have done that thing, you know. They're wrong and I'm right. So that kind of justification is one aspect. You know, we believe it. We, you know, give into it. It's like indulging that that ill will. Or another kind of flavor that often we uh, react to around ill will is that we're kind of horrified at our ill will, and we think, "Oh, this is bad. What's wrong? We need to, you know." stuff it. We've got to stop feeling this thing. It, 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 we, we recognize it as being um, you know, something that's off in a way. And our response to that offness is to say bad feeling. So what's the, what's the pathway between these two of either kind of saying yes to the thing or bad thing? The Buddha recommends mindfulness. You know, that we can um, have kind of an indirect approach here is to not repress the feeling, but also to not act on it. To be aware of it, to be mindful of it. Notice the feelings, particularly associated with thoughts of ill will. You know, the, 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 the bodily broiling <laughs> that comes, you know, the, the heat, the pressure, the tension that comes with this feeling of ill will. Notice also any reactions that we have to it. You know, self-judgment, 
self-criticism, or self-righteousness. You know, the, the kind of, what, what is the flavor of our, our reaction to this ill will? So this is one way to explore ill will. You know, I spent one retreat where there was a lot of aversion and anger coming up at a particular person. And any time that person came into my mind, it would like take off so fast. I thought about this person, it, would like, phew, it was like a volcano exploding, that this anger would arise. And so I really got to observe this. You know, this was a two-week retreat, I think. You know, I really got to watch this process of anger. And it happened very quickly, usually. You know? So often I was right in the state of anger, almost before I even recognized it. And then it's just a process of, okay, here's, this is what anger feels like. You know, this is what this state is. But over the course of the retreat, my mind got quite settled. And I began to see the thoughts in the mind that would trigger the ill will. And, and so I could see the thoughts before the ill will was quite there. And then I could begin to see the very first few split seconds of ill will coming up. And the first few split seconds of, of that emotion, you know, mostly, you know, when it, was, when it was fully blown, it had the sense of pressure and, you know, heat. It's like... The very first few seconds of that emotion arising were warmth and fullness, and it was pleasant. I was actually shocked. But what it showed me was, like, that's the hook. That was the hook for that emotion. It's like those, those split seconds of pleasure in that sense of... There's some, there was a little bit of that, that sense of you know, self-justification before it went nuts. So, it, you know, we can really learn a lot by observing our, our anger. And as we observe it without acting on it, it begins to, the mind begins to understand, you know, this classic teaching of the Buddha that with anger, you know, that what anger is, is like it's an attempt to pick up a hot coal to throw at somebody to hurt them. You know, we really kind of have this view or this idea that our anger, you know, in directing anger outward, we have this view that it's going to, you know, make the other person miserable. You know, that's kind of part of the aim, you know, and actually that's something I saw in looking at my anger is that, you know, part of the aim of that anger was to make the other person miserable. And that was going to make me happy, to make the other person miserable. <laughs> so if we, you know, see this process, the mind itself begins to learn, you know, it's like picking up that hot coal. You know, you burn yourself first. The, the feeling of anger itself has a burning quality to it. So the mindfulness is, an, is a way to approach the exploration of ill will. Another approach is um, you know, using reflection, you know, cultivating, on, cultivating a reflection of, of you know, what are the drawbacks of ill will. And this is one of the things that the Buddha did. 
in his own exploration. He said, what I did when I noticed thoughts of ill will coming up, and again, the Buddha saying, I noticed thoughts of ill will coming up. What I did was to reflect on the drawbacks. You know, these thoughts lead to my harm, my suffering. These thoughts lead to the suffering and the affliction of others. That's not the direction I wish to go. So can I release? Can I let go of them? So that's another approach, is kind of conscious reflection of the drawbacks. And then there's a a way, uh, so the cultivation of um, the intention towards non-ill will can come about through being mindful of ill will, not acting on it, not repressing it. It can come about through this reflecting on the drawbacks of ill will. And it can also come about through more consciously cultivating the quality of kindness itself, of cultivating the quality of the... Metta is the Pali term for kindness, for loving kindness. And there's a practice, a a meditative practice that can support this cultivation of kindness. And it's a thought practice. It's actually a practice of using thought. Now we bring up thoughts in our mind of kindness towards ourselves, towards others. And the Buddha recommended this as an antidote towards ill will. If you notice yourself thinking thoughts of ill will towards yourself or others, can you replace those thoughts with thoughts of kindness? And simple thoughts of kindness. You know, may you be at ease. May you be healthy. May you be happy. May I be healthy. May I be happy. So this is cultivating the wholesome quality kind of more directly. And there's a lot that I can say about metta as well, and perhaps I'll do that in another, another week as well. I think um, that deserves a good, a good dis- discussion. And the third kind of um, intention is the intention towards harmlessness, towards compassion, So this tends to oppose cruel thoughts, violent thoughts, aggressive thoughts. The intention towards the wish that another be harmed. Now this kind of intention, you know, it can be kind of startling and almost shocking to recognize this in our own minds. You know, to really see that, you know, part of our intention in our behavior towards others is wish that they be harmed. You know, we don't think of ourselves that way. We don't tend to think of ourselves that way. My own experience of this, you know, it was one person I was extremely angry with for several years. Um, As I was exploring, you know, my rage, my anger, at one point I saw, you know, as I said a little while ago, how that, you know, intention of anger is kind of directed to making the other person miserable. And in that exploration, what I really saw is, you know, at some level of my mind, there was a wish that that person be harmed, you know, be miserable, get, you know, in an accident or something. There was, there was, that wish was there. And it was when I, when the mindfulness got clear enough to actually see that and to acknowledge it, it was kind of shocking. And that moment of seeing that and recognizing that, it was, it was kind of like seeing, you know, the seeds. What, what came to my mind was it kind of 
seeing that wish for harm of somebody who had been a dear friend, you know, that I wished at some level that they be harmed, I saw that kind of multiply by six billion and saw that that's where war comes from. You know, that that, that seed for war is really, it's in all of us. You know, we, we think of ourselves perhaps as not you know, oh, I wouldn't be in that situation or I wouldn't do that. But what I saw in that moment was, you know, I am not, you know, taking this kind of action because of the kind of circumstance I'm in. If I were in Afghanistan, if I'd grown up in Afghanistan, you know, it's hard to say what direction my life would have taken. You know, that, that these seeds of cruelty actually are in each of us. And so not to, you know, repress this or, you know, it, it, it can be quite distressing to see this. But again, you know, the practice here is not about repressing, but it's about recognizing, not acting on and not repressing. This middle way to just being with that experience. You know, for me, that moment of seeing that opened to, you know, it was, it was kind of humbling and it also opened to the recognition of compassion for the fact that this pattern of wishing that others be harmed is not just myself alone, that it is kind of human-wide and results in so much suffering. So that seeing, you know, it, it showed me the possibility in my own mind of that direction, but also opened me to the compassion. So this is the, you know, this is how seeing these thoughts can open us to this intention towards non-harming, this intention towards compassion. So again, the Buddha recommended contemplating the drawbacks of these thoughts. You know, what, that these, these thoughts, if acted on, will lead to suffering, to affliction of ourselves and others. And we can also cultivate compassion in a um, formal way, kind of like the, the way we cultivate metta. The cultivation of metta moves along by wishing kindness, wishing well, you know, connecting with the kind of general wish for happiness that all beings have. The cultivation of compassion moves by Connecting with suffering, recognizing the suffering of another person and uh, opening our heart to that pain. When an open heart can meet suffering, the response, the natural response is compassion. And the wish is, may you be free from that suffering. So that's the kind of thought that we use to incline our minds towards compassion bringing someone to mind and recollecting some suffering they may be experiencing and wishing, may you be free from that suffering. So the Buddha, in this teaching that I'm talking about, about seeing these two kinds of thoughts, you know, these, these two aspects of thought, you know, these kind that lead towards suffering and towards happiness. He said, Whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, 
that becomes the inclination of the mind. If one frequently thinks and ponders upon thoughts of sense desire, one abandons thoughts of renunciation to cultivate thoughts of sense desire. If one frequently thinks and ponders upon thoughts of ill will, one abandons thoughts of non-ill will to cultivate thoughts of ill will. If one frequently thinks and ponders upon thoughts of cruelty, one abandons thoughts of non-cruelty to cultivate thoughts of cruelty. So we, we have some choice here. That mindfulness itself is a way to, in a, in a sense of not acting on the thought externally, but also internally. Mindfulness itself is a way to open to that uh, experience that results from thoughts of ill will, of cruelty, of sense desire. But kind of internally neither acting on nor repressing in our minds. Mindfulness kind of allows something to follow its natural course, which is impermanent. A thought of cruelty is impermanent. It will arise and pass away. A thought of ill will is impermanent. It will arise and pass away. When we observe with mindfulness these experiences, we just see their nature with these thoughts. We see the nature of these thoughts as being impermanent. We understand how they're connected with dukkha. So the mindfulness is a a pathway towards this abandoning of these thoughts. So turning our thoughts in the direction of uh, renunciation, kindness, and compassion begins to put ourselves into alignment with the truth with freedom from suffering. I'll finish with saying um, something about from, from Bhikkhu Bodhi again. Um, in this investigation around these intentions, he says, our concern must not be with what is pleasant, but with what is true. We have to be prepared and willing to discover what is true, even at the cost of our comfort, For real security lies on the side of truth, not on the side of comfort. So we have a couple of minutes if there's any thoughts or comments that anyone has. Yeah. Your talk this morning seems closely connected to um, a lovely little book I found recently entitled, When the Chocolate Runs Out. (laughs) 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 The author is Lama Yeshi, and it is, I'm finding, a a wonderful meditation guide. Uh Uh-huh. That's beautiful. Thank you. This was a really, really useful talk. So thank you. Um, I'm really stuck with a, with a friend um, who I'm really angry with. Um, she she has a, these goes in and out of these passive-aggressive phases with me um, and what she's been doing recently. And I, I had a moment yesterday where I, I could feel myself letting go and seeing 
a different view of things, but then it disappeared, and I can't remember what it is. <laughs> Something along the line of like, oh, I'm just not even seeing things in the right way here at all. Uh-huh. Um, so I guess from what you're saying, I, I need to just con- continue to be mindful of not, re- not take action or repress, but be mi- continue to be mindful until I actually have a better sense of that's, what to do. That's a really good approach, you know, especially when you, if you're committed to this kind of a path. You know, understand your own um, anger about things. Now, that, now, anger, you know, we don't always just simply with anger say, oh, you know, anger, you know, I'm not going to take any action. Sometimes anger indicates we do need to take some action. But to be sure that we're being wise about it, you know, that, that we're not acting out of the anger, but acting out of understanding, you know, acting out of compassion rather than frustration. So that, you know, observing for yourself until you're more clear about, you know, where the, the lines are, because there is probably compassion in there, in the, in the mix. You know, I found that um, often with these emotions, there's, you know, unwholesome and wholesome motivations both tied together. And we so quickly will act out of the unwholesome motivation that we don't really get a chance to connect with the wholesome side. So an exploration of that know, really begin to understand that. And you can also at the same time do some metta both for yourself and for her. You know, just, okay, so may I be happy. Or, or compassion, if that's more in line with what's going on. May I be free from the suffering of this anger. And may she be, she be free of the suffering that's resulting in her actions. You know, so to, to uh, include that in your exploration as well can also allow the heart to relax a little bit. And I think, yeah, it's time to stop. I talked for longer than I thought I would, so I'll talk next week, I think, a little bit more about sense desire.